Well, certainly it's great to be here. I can, I can tell you with my whole heart, there's no place I'd rather be than to be here this morning. I'm thankful for you guys, and it's, it's almost unbelievable that it's been a year since last time I've been here. And so much has changed in the world, but it's amazing that we have a consistent God who does not change. And this morning, we want to just talk about him and to focus on him and cast aside all the cares of this life. And I pray that our lesson for this morning, it will be both encouraging and edifying. But most importantly, that will be done in spirit and in truth. So just to open us up with the opening passage, I'd like for us to read from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So it's often said that we know who the Savior sent from God is. We know that God came down in the form of man to die for our sins. But, excuse me. One concept that we're not as familiar with is the pavior sent from God. And I was told this a couple weeks back when I was talking to a brother and a sister about this topic, about this title, that the word pavior is not really something we use today. But that term pavior, all it means is someone who paves the way. And when we say the pavior sent from God, we're talking about John the Baptist, because he is the connecting link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, he is the first one to speak or the first preacher, if you will, after the 400 years of revelatory silence. So for this morning, we want to focus on the pavior sent from God, because if we can understand the pavior and his role, we can better understand and appreciate Jesus Christ and what he did for us in the scheme of redemption. So our study for this morning, will go over three points. Number one, we'll look at John as a person. We'll look at him from his birth to his upbringing before his manifestation to Israel. Then we'll look to John's preparation, his role in the scheme of redemption and preparing the way for Christ. And lastly, we'll look at John's perspective, the perspective he had of himself in God's plan, how he carried himself. But as we begin, when we start with John as a person, it's natural that when we learn about somebody, we start first with their parents. So we want to turn to Luke chapter 1 and read verses 5 through 7. There the Bible says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So we see that just from this one passage that both of John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're, they're a priestly family on both sides. And they weren't just any priestly family, they were devout Jews. How devout they followed God and all the, command, all the commandments and ordinances, they were blameless. These were not just lukewarm followers of God by any means. 
And with that being said, the only problem was they had no child. And back in this day and age or back in that time, if you had no child, everybody used to think that there was something wrong with you. You guys must have been uh, unrighteous. You guys, these people, they may have appeared to be good, but behind the scenes, they had something wrong with them. But that's not the case at all. Because their fortune would change in Luke chapter 1 and verse 11. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 11, the Bible says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, being Zacharias, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So Zacharias' visit with the angel Gabriel marked the end of the 400 years of revelatory silence. And the angel spoke the very first words of prophetic uh, nature since the last Old Testament prophet. And the angel, he reveals a threefold reception of this boy. According to the parents, he, the parents would rejoice with gladness. They'd be filled with gladness. But in the eyes of the public, everybody would rejoice at his birth. But in the sight of God, he'd be great. He would be great. And concerning his lifestyle, the Bible says that he was going to abstain from wine and strong drink, which uh, indicates that he was going to be under a Nazarite vow. We're not too familiar with that, but that's when someone would be dedicated to God. They would be told to abstain from any great products. You couldn't touch a dead body. You could not be unclean ceremonially. And some people that we know that are, uh, that we better know that are Nazarites are Samson and Samuel. But unlike those men who for a time of their life were dedicated to God, John the Baptist's whole life will be dedicated to God in service. And we read one final verse concerning the upbringing of of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 and verse 80. And the Bible says, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. We have some other passages, but pretty much that's all we know about him. And you might think or we might think that there's no way. That's just too broad. We don't know a whole lot. But I can assure you this morning we know exactly what we need to truly understand how he was raised. And what I mean by that is, these three points, he had the proper parents, he had this proper spiritual living place, which allowed him to be prepared for his work in ministry. And with John having the proper parents, remember we just talked about how he's, his parents were devout Jews, they followed God in all ways, And no doubt, if they were devout Jews, they would have followed this Old Testament scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 18 says this, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, And on your gates. 
that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. So no doubt if they were devout Jews, they would have followed this commandment. So we see that John the Baptist, he was raised knowing the scriptures. He was taught the scriptures. But not only that, he was raised in the desert. And the reason why that's important is because he was not raised in the, in the city, surrounded by sin and worldliness, but he had the best place to grow up where he was unhindered, not influenced by the world by any means, where he just had a hyperbolic time chamber of spiritual growth. Totally unhindered. And I can only just sit here in amazement, and I wish we all had that. The only way we could probably have that is if we lived in West Texas. But besides that, it's probably not the best, or it's not going to work out for us in that having that uh, situation. But keeping on with this, he had godly parents. He had a spiritual environment which allowed him to be prepared for his life's work. And like I said just a minute ago, it's unlikely we could do the same thing. But we have to ask ourselves this question. If we're doing the best we can to raise our families in a spiritual home, does our home reflect worldliness or does it teach godliness? And the Bible teaches this in a couple verses we want to look at. The first verse is Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And lastly, Joshua preached a similar message. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And each of us this morning, we have a decision to make. What's it going to be for our family? What about your family? Are we going to choose to serve the Lord or to choose to live a worldly life? Because our children will either uh, reap the consequences, or excuse me, they'll pay the consequences or reap the benefits of this decision, ultimately. But as we transition, excuse me, I'm working, still working through this PowerPoint, but uh, as we transition, this boy in the wilderness would go on to become a man. And now we turn from John's... Uh, person or the person of John, his personal life, we now turn to his preparation for the work. And this role of a preparer, it finds great historical uh, significance. Robert Milligan in the scheme of redemption, he says this about this role of being a pavior. We are told by ancient historians that when Eastern monarchs were about to set out on an important expedition, it was their custom to send harbingers or heralds in advance of their armies with orders to provide supplies, make bridges, find the best fording places over streams, level hills, construct causeways, cut down forests, and in a word, to do whatever might be necessary to prepare the way before them. And one example of this custom or this practice is recorded by Orion's history of Alexander the Great. Orion says, that he, being Alexander, 
now proceeded to the river Indus, a company going before which made a way for him, for otherwise there would have been no mode of passing through that region. So in the same way that these earthly kings would send a, a messenger, a harbinger, but for them to prepare the way, God sent John the Baptist to, pre to prepare the way for Christ. And we see that Isaiah prophesied in this in Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 3 through 5. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we can see that this prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist and all the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, Mark 1 and 3, Luke 1 and John 1. So we know that this is talking about John the Baptist. And the same language of preparing the way uh, that those uh, earthly messengers did is applied to John the Baptist. But the way that he prepared the world was completely different to the way that the earthly messengers prepared the world for their king. And we see that unlike the worldly kings that commanded their harbingers to prepare the way physically, John the Baptist prepared the way spiritually. I'm going to look at this. For example, uh, these worldly messengers, they made bridges, they leveled hills, they cut down forests. But John the Baptist, he, he told the people to repent. He told them to confess their sins and to turn back to God. And he was preparing them spiritually. He was preparing them spiritually. In Luke chapter 3 and verses 11 through 14, we get an example of this where John the Baptist, he commands the people Look, you who have two tunics, give to someone who doesn't have any. And uh, you guys, don't lie and steal. The military, don't lie and steal. Be content with your wages. And what he was doing was he was trying to change the hearts of men. He was trying to prepare the hearts of men for the Christ to come. And this makes all the more, all the more sense when we realize that uh, Christ's kingdom is not a worldly kingdom or a physical kingdom. Therefore, it's not prepared like the world like the kingdoms of the world, but it's a spiritual kingdom. John chapter 18, verses 36 and 37. But as we hasten on, we could see that in John the Baptist's mission, he was successful. What I mean by that is because first off, he prepared many of the Jews for the Messiah and for his kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 4 says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So unlike Jeremiah, uh, where we were talking about earlier, where he had some 40 years of, of uh, preaching, did not convert one person. That's not a reflection on Jeremiah being a bad preacher, but it's a reflection of the hearts of the people at that time. What we see here completely, completely opposite, John the Baptist went about preaching almost an entire region. And they were prepared for the Messiah. But on top of that, it did not stop there. Because John the Baptist pointed his own disciples in the right direction. Because in John chapter 1, the Bible teaches us that one of John the Baptist's disciples, 
John told him that's the Messiah, that's the Christ. He went home. He went home and he told his brother, we found the Messiah. We found him. Finally. And those two men, they went on to become disciples of Christ and apostles. That's Andrew and Simon Peter. And it's interesting that Andrew, who's not the preacher, is the one who brought his brother along. Which just goes to show that not only the preacher has to evangelize, or not only the teacher, but it's, it's a job that everybody can do behind the scenes. But lastly, probably without a doubt, the most important thing John the Baptist did was that he baptized Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, we'll read about this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. And we, right here we see John's humility is on full display. He recognizes that he is unworthy to baptize Jesus. He says, I have sinned. I need to be baptized by you. You are sinless. But here's where we see the difference between why we're baptized and why Jesus was baptized. We're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, but Jesus was baptized to remain sinless. And I know that's a pretty loaded statement, but we're going to prove that in scriptures in just a second. But as soon as Jesus was immersed, the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended upon Christ in the form of a dove. And God declared that this was his son. But all of this happened for a reason. And that's because uh, God had promised John the Baptist a sign. And this sign is recorded in John chapter 1 and verse 29. The Bible says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So the reason why Jesus had to be baptized is so that John the Baptist would be able to witness it and say, That's the one right there. That's the Messiah, and be able to point everybody to him. So we get from this passage that if Jesus had not have fulfilled that, he would have sinned. Because it was a promise by God that he would do so. So thus we see that we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was baptized to remain sinless, perfectly obedient to God in every way. But as we transition in this study... As we study important figures of history, we study their origins and their life work. 
But perhaps the greatest and most important thing is not only what someone did, but it's how they carried themselves in their life. Were they haughty? Were they humble? And we see that with John the Baptist, we see that not only was his um, personal upbringing and his preparation for Christ impressive, but so was his perspective of himself in God's plan. So lastly, this morning we get to our third point, John's perspective. And we'll go over three passages in looking at this point. John's perspective of himself. In John chapter 1 and verse 19, the Bible says, Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So we see that, we can really see John the Baptist's influence because the region is in an uproar. This guy, he's going around converting everybody, getting people to repent and to focus back on God. So the Pharisee, they send people, this guy's on our turf. Let's go see what, what's he, he's, what he's all about. Who does, he, who does he think he is? So they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, no. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. So we see that John the Baptist, no matter how big his role was, he never lost sight of who he was. And what we can see today is that some preachers and teachers, they look at themselves like they are the Messiah instead of them being just a messenger. But we see that John the Baptist, he never looked at himself any bigger or greater than what he truly was. He was simply a messenger, an earthen vessel, an earthen vessel of the Lord. But we have to ask ourselves, how do we view ourselves in God's plan? Do we make ourselves more than we ought to be, or do we realize that we're just messengers of God? But John the Baptist, he humbled himself further. In John chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, the Bible says, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And here, when John speaks of the Christ, he shows the greatest humility. You know, uh, the lowliest of roles that a servant would do is they take off your shoes, they put them on, they fasten them, they tighten them. John here, he says, the lowliest of roles with the Christ, I am unworthy. I don't even belong, or I don't even deserve to touch him, to come near him. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we view God? How do we view Christ? Do we approach him like he is something common, like he is a common man? Or do we realize he is above us? Are we humbled when we acknowledge his holiness, that we don't deserve a relationship with him, but he allows it? Do we view ourselves as side by side and equal, or do we look up at him and recognize that he is powerful? But our last point in showing John's perspective is in John chapter 3 and verse 30. And to give you some context here, 
John the Baptist, his disciples, they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This Jesus over here, this guy, he's coming on our turf now, and he's stealing some of our disciples, our converts. He, he's taking over our, our mission here. And John says, I know, I know. But he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He says, this whole entire time, I've been preparing the road for the Messiah to come. But now he's here. It's time for me to get off the road and let him go through. He must increase and I must decrease. And what we have to ask ourselves is, in our lives, who do we reflect? Uh, and I'll kind of give you an example of this. Um, studying the past eight or nine months with brothers and sisters on the phone, we, since we're studying the Bible, we have a lot of introspective conversations and I can't tell you how many times I hear someone say, Isaac, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not gentle. I'm not, I can't do that. I can't, I'm not nice. I'm not soft-spoken. I, I don't encourage people well. And I'm not really wise, but I'm wise enough to know what I can't say back to that because they're not ready to hear it or listen to it. But whenever someone says something like that, I'm thinking to myself, well, you're not supposed to be you. You're not supposed to be you at all. The whole point is he must increase and I must decrease. It's not about us. Every day, we're not supposed to be ourselves until that one day being ourselves is being Jesus or being like Jesus. And a couple of verses to prove this point. Paul preaches something similar. Philippians 1 and 21. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Another verse. Galatians 4.19. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. It's a continuous process. That's a day-by-day process that we must enter in. Each and every day should be used to be more like Christ and less like ourselves, ourselves until that day when being ourselves is being like Jesus. Do we reflect Christ or do we, re- or do we reflect ourselves? Because he must increase in our lives and we must decrease. But lastly in our study for this morning, after covering John the Baptist's perspective of himself, I want us to close with looking at Jesus' perspective of John the Baptist. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus speaking, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Jesus said that there has not been a greater man than John the Baptist ever. And that's quite the, quite the compliment, to say the least. When we talk about people, Alexander the Great, uh, Plato, Socrates, Um, George Washington, whoever we want to talk about or think about, Jesus says this man is the greatest man who's ever lived. But if you're like me, I'm thinking to myself, how could he say that? What makes him so great? What makes him special or different? And that's because John had the single most important life work any mortal man has ever had to prepare the world for the Messiah. It does not get any bigger than that. It's a lot bigger than the Colosseum. Nothing competes with that by any mortal man. 
which that would be enough right there to hang our hats on, and we just, we just end the sermon right there. But in a different account, Jesus repeats the same thing, but gives us another angle to the diamond. So let's look at Luke's account. Luke chapter 7 and verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Luke records something similar but different. He says where Matthew said there's never been a greater man, Luke says there's not been a greater prophet. But we got to call it time out. Again, how is that possible? We think of Daniel in the lion's den. We think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. We think of the messianic prophet himself, Isaiah. But Jesus says John the Baptist is greater. Was it because John the Baptist was a greater moral teacher? No. Same moral standard. Was it because John the Baptist, he had great miracles? No. He actually did not perform any miracles. Well, then how? And that's because John the Baptist was greatest in his privilege. Because the message that all the other prophets wanted to preach, he got to preach. He got to be able to say, that man right there, that's the Lamb of God, that's the Messiah. And those other men would have wished, they would have prayed that they had that opportunity. And John the Baptist got to say, the Messiah is here and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the two ways that John the Baptist was, was great, among many. John was the greatest man because he had the greatest life work in preparing the way for the Messiah. John was the, was the greatest prophet because he had a greater message and privilege than all of the prophets beforehand. But still after this, the Bible, Jesus connects this back to us. He says here, he gets like a, some of us, we remember from school when we learned greater than or less than, you get the alligator arms to prove the point. Here's mankind and anyone and everyone who's ever been born. He says John the Baptist is the greatest. But then he makes it about us. He says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than all of them. But again, how, how is that possible? Well, that's because all of us in our way are supposed to be like John the Baptist, but greater. Because the same way John the Baptist, his whole life was dedicated to God in service, that's the same for us. We have to live dedicated to God in service our whole lives. And another step is that we preach a greater message than John the Baptist. We preach that Jesus, he came, he saw, he conquered, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he's coming again. John the Baptist simply said he's here. But we get to tell the world what he did, what the Messiah, what the king did. But not only do we preach a greater message, we also have a very important mission to prepare the world because he is coming back again. But what's greater than what John the Baptist did for our king is actually what our king did for us and that he died for us. The last passage we want to look at this morning, John 15, verses 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. 
Everything that we just covered, John the Baptist was the great man. The Bible says he was one of the greatest men, if not the greatest. But what's greater than everything we talked about this morning is not what he did for the king, it's what the king did for us in dying for us. And the world has never seen a greater love. But as we conclude our lesson, we have a couple questions. But what will you do for the king? What will you do for the king? Will you be righteous parents teaching your children the way of God? Will you help prepare the world for Christ's second coming? And lastly, will you have the proper perspective of yourself and God's plan? And these are those points I just read, but lastly, lastly, we don't want to conclude our service this morning without offering the gospel plan of uh, invitation. The first part about preparing other people and helping other people is to first prepare ourselves. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Well, now you can be because as the Bible teaches, faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. And then we're commanded to believe that Jesus Christ is who he is, the son of God. And he says, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. John 8 and verse 24. We're commanded, commanded to repent, to turn from a life of sin, to turn to God in service. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we're baptized for the remission of our sins. But it does not stop there. That's not the end all be all. That's just the beginning of our spiritual walk as we're commanded to continue a faithful life. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.